This is the Journal of American History podcast for March 2010. We are delighted to welcome to the JH podcast Professor Scott Casper of the University of Nevada, Reno, the journal's contributing editor for our textbooks and teaching section. For the March 2010 issue, Scott issued an international call for papers and selected 10 articles from the 23 submitted. These essays, he writes in his introduction, describe individual practice and institutional and national contexts in Australia, Brazil, Canada, Egypt, Germany, Ireland, Lebanon, Russia, Scotland, and Turkey. Scott, thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Thank you, Ed. It's a pleasure to be with you. One of the authors, Patrick McGreevy, mentions in his chapter the following, For the students in my class, America was not simply a faraway land, but a palpable and sometimes shocking presence in their lives. He's writing this about his experiences in Beirut, but this is a theme that seems to run throughout really all of uh, the essays, and you quote him in your introduction to these pieces. Could you say a little bit about uh, how you see these issues running throughout all of these essays? I'd be happy to. Also, in the same paragraph in McGreevy's essay, he writes that these students, that that is his students at the American University in Beirut, these students find themselves living against America, for some in the oppositional sense of that word, but for all in its sense of proximity. And I think that that notion of living against America, which is the title of his piece, in its twofold sense, does run through all the essays. That is, many students in many parts of the world see themselves as somehow in opposition to America. And that's certainly the case in in the essays that deal with students in, in the Muslim world, but, but not just in the Muslim world. There's a sense in many of the essays that students have a kind of split consciousness about the United States. That is, on the one hand, they devour American popular culture. In many cases, they have absorbed and imbibed the notion of the American dream. On the other hand, they often see the United States as a kind of threatening global power. And so you see this running through many of the essays. But at the same time, what McGreevy is suggesting is that, yes, some students have this sense of America as oppositional, but all of his students have a sense that America is somehow near to them. Everybody is living against America in approximate sense. It's as if it's as if every other nation in the world is on our borders because people all around the world are interacting with the United States in so many ways. Many of them are political, but but perhaps for even more students, they're they're economic, they're cultural, and that just runs through so many of these essays. Yes, I was I was really struck by the the living against America was not just ideological in in a political sense, but but the the omnipresence of American uh, commercial culture of American popular culture that that the symbol of America become this very dense thing and i uh, it helped me appreciate w- what a difficult and yet challenging task it must be for these uh teachers in other countries they're really contending with a multivalent symbol of america aren't they 
Absolutely, absolutely. Whether whether that multivalent symbol is a symbol of imperial power or a symbol of commercial power or of, of political power, um, many, many teachers in many parts of the world are contending with that. At the same time, many of them use students' ambivalence toward the United States or even students' suspicions and criticism of the United States to turn the lens back on their own societies and cultures. It's another theme that we see through many of these essays, that on issues that are sensitive within other nations' cultures, it may be hard to talk about those issues in the context of those cultures, but beginning with a discussion of those issues in the United States might lead to talking about them. To give you an example, uh, Sabina Meyer writes an essay about teaching U.S. history in Germany and the way in which her students generally think that Germany doesn't have issues of race and immigration. And she writes about how starting with a discussion of issues of race and immigration in the United States can often lead those students to look at, say, the the anti-immigrant, the nativist parties in Germany, and think about those in a historical perspective. So there's this this comparative dimension uh, that, that allows students a safe place to think about their own societies, questions that might be too fraught to address directly in those places. Scott, would you give listeners examples of how studying American history pushed students to look through different eyes at aspects of their own cultures? Absolutely. Timothy Minchin's essay, which is about teaching the U.S. civil rights movement in Australia, provides a wonderful example of this because He suggests that it's really in the last 40 years that Australians have increasingly come to grips with their own treatment of Aboriginal peoples in Australia. So discussing the American Civil Rights Movement becomes first a proxy and then an invitation to talk about how Australia is dealing with some of the same issues that America is dealing with. And as he points out in his essay, To some degree, the better analogy would be the analogy to Native American history rather than than African American history and the civil rights movement. But some of the the issues of the civil rights movement are similar, particularly things like uh, citizenship and voting rights, uh, and even, even the sense that there's a whole past there that is only beginning to be acknowledged in, in popular memory and public culture. So, so there's another example of how uh, thinking about America's treatment of non-dominant groups then leads people, to th- students, to think about similar issues in their own cultures. How, how, how are Native people in Australia treated? How, are, how, how is religious division in Turkey treated, for example, to, to think about Timothy Roberts' essay. He writes about the ways in which teaching the Civil War and, and the whole, all these questions of, of national division and sectionalism in the United States helps students talk about some of the tensions going on in, in Turkey even, even now. And in the essay on Canada, this, the same thing, isn't yeah. it, where the Civil War raises for students almost naturally issues of Canadian separatism and regionalism and all that. Which is a really interesting point for Canada, because as the author, Frank Towers, points out, the issues of separatism in Canada are issues of, of Quebec separatism, but he teaches in Alberta, in Western Canada. So he, in fact, is working with students 
who's thinking about the Civil War might as often be look at those misguided people in Quebec, not not the perspective of, well, we we want to separate. So for, from his perspective, you have to look even within the nation you're teaching in and think about the region and the locale where you're teaching because your students' perceptions in Alberta will not be the same as students' perceptions in Quebec. And so so you have this, this sense that any nation in which these these authors are teaching is a lot more internally complex than we sitting in the United States might might assume. So, so when you say teaching teaching the American Civil War in Canada, well, as his as the subtitle of his essay suggests, it's really about teaching the American Civil War in Western Canadian classrooms. It's much much more a particular approach to the nations in which people are teaching. And as he points out, in some ways, in Western Canada, you have issues that connect to the Civil War differently. For example, that Western Canada is itself the producer of a lot of staple resources, which makes it in some ways similar to, to the South and so on. So so you have these really interesting complexities. I, I'm hoping that in the process of reading about teaching in other places, readers of this, this issue of textbooks and teaching will also get some insight into these, these other places around the globe and, and the complexities that that our colleagues face. Thank you. So once again, contexts, plural, always matter. And uh, timing does too. I was fascinated in the uh, essay on teaching uh, American history in uh, Russia that for a long time, Russia had moved away from a kind of Cold War demonization of the United States. But in more recent times, there has been somewhat a, a return to that. And Certainly a theme that was present in that essay, Scott, that is present in many of them, is the challenge of not only scarce resources, but ossified resources. I was struck by how very, very traditional were the kinds of events and themes that students were uh, given to deal with in American history. Yes, you, you, ra- you raised two issues there, really. Uh, the, es- the essay um, on teaching American history in Russia is the most direct in its treatment of change over time. That essay is by Ivan Kurila and Victoria Zhirovleva. And that one really does tell a history of teaching U.S. history in Russia, thinking about how it was taught during the Cold War period, then during the, the, during the 1990s, how it became much more open. It was less about America as the great antagonist. But since the early 2000s, there's a sense of, of going back to anti-American feeling and a sense of um, the American monolith coming, coming back. So that certainly is a major theme of that essay. Most of the other essays don't deal as much with change over time in teaching U.S. history in other places. The other issue you raised there, which is about materials and approaches to teaching U.S. history, is absolutely fascinating. And, and there do seem to be several issues there. One is that particularly for people who are teaching in countries and places where English is not the native language, English is not the major language of instruction, there are absolutely challenges of resources. Uh, Celia Azevedo's essay about teaching at a, at a university in Brazil makes this really clear. It's, it's not just that students don't read English. It's also that for many of them, of course, their native language is Portuguese, and the closest she can come in getting some of the resources is to get resources in Spanish. 
So she's really working with a lot of challenges there, whether it be the primary sources or secondary sources. And, and several of the authors point out that more is available in translation now than, than was 20 years ago. That's helpful. The Internet helps as well. But the language, the language difficulties really, really do persist. And then there are the issues of method. To what extent, for example, have the developments in American cultural history permeated the teaching of U.S. history abroad. I think that it's very clear that in some of the, from some of these essays that cultural history is, is crucial to many of these scholars' teaching. I think, for example, of Joanne Mancini's essay. Uh, but in other places, my sense is that teachers and students, well, the students know relatively little about American history. And so the teachers are in the position of presenting really debates that we might think of as being debates of 15 or 20 years ago, because that's where students are starting from. I imagine that many readers, Scott, will be intrigued by the title of Patrick Mason's essay about teaching American religious history in the Muslim Middle East. Talk with us about this fascinating essay. Mason's essay, What's So Bad About Polygamy, is one of those in this section that's very much about pedagogy. And he, he explains that really in two ways. One is, what did he do in the classroom at the American University in Cairo? And among his techniques was to have students reconstruct or restage major constitutional debates. One of those being the debate over Reynolds v. U.S. from 1879, the, the, the Mormon polygamy case that reached the Supreme Court in 1879. And what he does in this exercise is have students present the different points of view in the case and then consider themselves as the Supreme Court and figure out what they would do if they're the Supreme Court. And his students in Cairo pretty much unanimously argued that the Mormons should be permitted to maintain polygamy because, after all, that's, that's part of religious freedom guaranteed by the Constitution. And he doesn't tell the students in advance what the outcome of the case is. So his students in Cairo were stunned to learn that the Supreme Court in 1879 went absolutely the opposite way. And as he explains, these students were making an argument both from America's constitutional ideals and from their own cultural context in which, as his title suggests, what's so bad about polygamy? He also recounts doing the same exercise at Notre Dame and having the students pretty much unanimously come down exactly where the Supreme Court did, which is polygamy is, is unconstitutional. And it's an exercise that, that gets students in various cultures involved in thinking through these larger issues. So that's one kind of pedagogy that Mason describes that really points out the differences between different cultural perspectives. Another, as you mentioned, is his use of video conferences. In, in, 2000, in 2009, he partnered with a professor at Illinois State University to teach courses by videotape between Illinois State and the American University of Cairo. So he had students talking to each other across these, across these cultural boundaries and across what sounded like pretty, pretty strong technological boundaries, you know, even, even down to time zones. But as he, as he points out, 
he writes, the payoff was significant and the effort made was worth it when the students in Illinois engaged my class about the meaning of the veil and my female students responded there was a form of liberation and agency rather than oppression. Or when my students pressed the other side about Christian support for American foreign policy in the Middle East. And so, so you have the sense that students can talk to each other across these across these cultural divides through through video conferencing, through really imaginative partnerships between professors in, in quite different places. So so I think he provides not just a discussion of teaching US history abroad, but a model that faculty members both inside and outside the United States really would, would do well to think about as we think about making our own classrooms more global. Thank you, Scott. If we stay on Mason's uh, article for a moment, I was really fascinated to read that he was able to uh, somehow link his students with the Puritans in New England. And uh, this is one of those wonderful, uh, almost a kind of aesthetic insight that uh, is just a jewel. And let me read a little bit of this and then ask you to, uh, to respond. Perhaps I could have anticipated this if I had thought more about it, but many of my Middle Eastern Muslim students had far more in common with 17th century New England Puritans than did most of my 21st century American students. The way that Puritanism offered a totalizing, undifferentiated worldview in which the sacred presses upon every aspect of life resonates in many, though not all, corners of contemporary Islam in a way that most expressions of American Christianity no longer do. In addition, the lines between religion and state are often blurry in many areas of the Arab world, even in a putatively secular republic like Egypt. So my Egyptian students could grapple with the intricate relationship of church and state in Puritan New England in a far more informed way than most American students, who, even if they are personally religious, casually dismiss religious establishments as unenlightened and even barbaric antiquities. That's simply a, a fascinating passage, and to think of his Egyptian students as in some way being closer soulmates to the Puritans than uh, their uh, American descendants is really a, quite a pearl, isn't it? It's a wonderful insight, and it's the kind of insight that a scholar who was trained in the U.S., and then went to teach abroad might never have without the experience of somewhere else. You know, he and he's able to compare that with the American students he taught before and has taught since he was in, in Cairo. And and you know, as as he points out, when when American students hear the word Puritanism, their eyes usually just glaze over. And and so that to experience a classroom where Puritanism got students really interested and, and and made sense to students in a way that it does not make sense to so many American students. It's, it's a wonderful insight. What is the challenge these essays raise for those of us who teach in the United States? And think about the challenge that this would pose to most U.S. historians of American history. The challenge is to become familiar enough with other countries, other nations, other societies to be able to see the United States through their eyes. How many of us as U.S. historians could responsibly teach our U.S. history classes from the perspective of people in Beirut or people in Hanoi? 
I wonder how many of us have enough understanding of other places, given the specialization of our training, to to get into the, the minds of, of people in those places, and particularly to get into the divisions in those places to understand that the perceptions of the United States in Beirut or the perceptions of the United States in Australia are probably not any more monolithic than Americans' perceptions of Beirut or Hanoi or Australia. So so I think that, that McGreevy is posing this wonderful challenge to us as, as U.S.-based American historians to get our students thinking about what America looks like from abroad. But it is a challenge that many of us would be incredibly hard-pressed to rise to. How do you think this might change your own teaching of history? Great question. I, I've had some thoughts about that. You know, I, I think like, like many U.S. historians in the past 10 or 15 years, I've thought increasingly over time about globalizing the way I teach U.S. history. But I think that I'm not doing it the way McGreevy suggests. I think most of us aren't doing it the way McGreevy suggests. You know, I, I'm I'm certainly thinking more about the ways in which the history of, say, 19th century America is intertwined with the histories of other parts of the world and bringing more of that into my classroom. I think lots of us who teach anything related to the the colonial and early American period have thought more and more about that as as a combination of U.S. history, European history, and African history. I I think a lot of us have done things like that. To the extent that we've done that, have we also really done what McGreevy talks about, which is look at look at America from the point of view of people elsewhere? I don't I don't know. I think it's a, it's a great challenge. Another another thing that comes out of these essays, particularly Joanne Mancini's essay, is a notion of how to get students engaged in doing history themselves. In some ways, Mancini's essay could just as easily have been published in a textbooks and teaching section about hands-on history as, as in a section on teaching U.S. history abroad. She teaches in Ireland. She teaches American cultural history in Ireland. And the title of her essay is Because It Is My Culture, and the my is, is in italics, and that's a quotation from one of her students. When she asked her students why they were interested in studying U.S. culture, one of them said, because it's my culture. And, and he didn't just mean because I'm a consumer of U.S. cultural products. It was because he himself was a blues guitar player and guitar player. And so he had a sense that he was engaged in the production of American culture, not just the consumption of it. And then Mancini in her class has every student create some kind of uh, American cultural product. Often it involves recreating some kind of product in, in an audio fashion uh, or restaging a play or something like that. Like, that gets them thinking about American culture from the perspective of producers, not just consumers. I could absolutely imagine that doing something like that in my classroom. I think, I think many of us who teach cultural history would love to get our students involved in thinking about what it means to produce culture, not just intellectually, but in a hands-on sense. So there's, a, there's an example pedagogically of something that I and, and hopefully readers of this section can, can take away from reading these essays. I was fascinated to learn in many of these essays of the real explosion of new centers of American history or American studies 
in a number of different countries and means in some ways we need to help with translations of texts. We need to get latest scholarship in the hands of people who are doing this kind of work as these new center new centers arise. And I wondered, uh, as you read this, what you thought about the kind of challenges and promises of uh, resources for new programs in American history. It's a, it's a great challenge. Uh, it's, it seems to me from reading those essays, and, and I saw exactly what you did, that the essays about Germany, Australia, and Russia really focus on, focus on this issue. It, it does seem as though historians of the U.S. who are teaching, in pla- teaching and pursuing their own scholarship in places other than the U.S. really want the kind of collegial uh, connections that come from having organizations, having journals in their home countries. Given the cost of, of travel, it is really important to have those kinds of, of connections close to home. And so what, what are the challenges that such scholars face? Some of those challenges involve getting access to the U.S. materials that, that they want and they need in order to pursue their own scholarship. So it's, it's, about, it's about scholarship as much as it is about research, because, of course, we're talking here about people who are, like us, research-active historians, not simply people who are teaching U.S. history in places abroad. So, so having those connections becomes all the more important. One of the things that, that really interested me at the end of Sabina Meyer's article about teaching in Germany is that she, she puts a two-way spin on this issue. That is, it's obviously the case that scholars teaching U.S. history outside the U.S., need access to what scholars in the U.S. can provide and really need access to the conversations that we are having. But that can seem so much like almost a, um, an outreach mission by U.S. scholars to our, to our um, poor but less advantaged colleagues elsewhere. And I think that Sabina Meyer turns that on its head in really good ways. As she writes, on the contrary, our different intellectual traditions and historical methodologies, our status as non-native speakers, and our different cultural background and geschickt Bewusstsein, which is historical understanding, lead to fresh readings of American sources. Such new insights and a fruitful cooperation between US, German U.S. historians and other scholars of American history all over the world can transcend what Willie Paul Adams called intellectual nationalism. And I think, I think she makes a really good point there, that, that – at the same time that we as practitioners in the United States should be reaching out to our colleagues and to their organizations elsewhere, we're doing that not just to foster their work, but also to enhance our own. And I think that's a, a really important way to think about why it's important to make connections with these emerging or in some cases long-standing professional organizations abroad. Scott, there are so many marvelous stories in these essays. Uh, could you, as a kind of last comment, share with us uh, several of stories that, that have real staying power for you? Sure. One of, one of them is really personal. Um, about 10 years ago, I was in Edinburgh, and just, just as a tourist, I had gone for a conference and stayed, stayed for a while as a tourist, and I was wandering around a cemetery. And what should I come across in that cemetery but a statue of Abraham Lincoln and a kneeling slave? 
And so, of course, I had been teaching um, Standing Soldiers, Kneeling Slaves, Kirk Savage's book about, about sculpture, post-Civil War sculpture. And so there in the middle of Edinburgh, Edinburgh, I came across this. And so to read Paul Quigley's essay about teaching the Civil War in Scotland and to learn that he takes his students to that statue to talk about Lincoln and the Civil War and the memory of the Civil War was just a great, a great moment for me and a wonderful revelation in general that you can find resources in many, many places that you never expected. He, he describes how, of course, when he was a graduate student at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, he had all the resources in the world for teaching the Civil War. And so in Edinburgh, he has to make do with different resources, and, and that statue becomes one of them. That was, that was a fun moment for me uh, because, because I remembered that statue quite vividly and have shown my own photographs of that in my own classroom. So there's, there's one example. Another example comes from Joanne Mancini's essay in which she writes about students in Ireland recreating scenes from the 1971 movie Fiddler on the Roof, which, which strikes me as this great example of multicultural interconnections, an, an American stage play turned movie about Russians in the late 19th century being reperformed in, in Ireland. What, what a moment. And there, there are moments like that throughout these essays where where we see these intersections between between places and cultures and historical periods that are just, just fun to fun to come across they are indeed and this scott this is a wonderful section for the journal teaching us history abroad that will appear in march 2010 my deepest thanks to you both for this section that I think will will be widely read and thought about, and also for taking the time to do this podcast with us. Thank you so much, Ed. It's been a real pleasure. This podcast is produced by the Journal of American History, the leading scholarly publication and the journal of record in American history. Visit us on the web at www.journalofamericanhistory.org. Please support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. Subscribe online at www.oah.org, and you will receive a printed copy of the journal four times a year. Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Join us in June for our next program. Once again, if you have comments or suggestions, please email us at jahcast.com at indiana.edu.